Good morning to you all. A warm welcome to everyone in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. This has been a, a difficult week in the life of our church as Pastor Jetty, Jesse, Jetty, as Pastor Jesse alluded to, our, our beloved pastor Harvey has passed into glory. And, and if you're a visitor this morning, Pastor Harvey was the pastor of Community Bible Church before my tenure here. He was here for 32 years. Doing anything consistently for 32 years is a tremendous task, especially given the nature of pastoral, the difficulty of pastoral work. Pastor Harvey was a faithful man, a godly man. And to just kind of highlight this from his life, I, I was told that the morning of his passing, he, he passed on Thursday. That morning, he led a Bible study for a group of men at his church in Sioux Falls from the book of Hebrews. And I had a brother tell me, he, he put it so well that this brother referring to Pastor Harvey, he said that Pastor Harvey was doing the Lord's work to the very end. What are we doing for Christ? What are, what are you doing for Christ? Are you serving the Lord in that way? Are you giving of your life to God from beginning to end? That question naturally arises from Pastor Harvey's life. He, he, he died doing what he spent his life doing, and that was teaching the Word of God. Praise God for Pastor Harvey. Praise God for Pastor Harvey. Well, if you're a visitor, I extend a warm welcome to you this morning. Uh, my name is Pastor Chance Sumner. Uh, Pastor Jesse is in the foyer right now, and we also have elders here in the congregation. Elders, would you stand so that the, the visitors can recognize you? We have one here on the bottom. If you're a visitor, thank you, Kevin. If you're a visitor, please come and talk to either Kevin or Jesse or myself. We would love to converse with you and tell you about ourselves, tell you about our church, and to get to know you better. We would love to have that opportunity. Well, this morning we're finishing our series in, in, in the ad, this short Advent series. If you, have a, if you have a Bible, if you have a copy of God's Word, go ahead and open up to Luke 2. Luke 2 will be in verses verse 10 through 12 this morning. And the way we're examining this passage and the way that we've been examining the passages in which the angels share with Joseph, Mary, and the shepherds, we've been examining these passages in light of what the gospel is. And the way I've defined the gospel is this. Actually, let me see how, how well you've paid attention. The gospel is the we can do better than that. The gospel is the story, excellent, of the person and work of Christ and his first and second coming. Maybe next year we'll do a little bit better on that, about that, huh? We're examining these passages on the basis of the gospel. The gospel is the story of the person and work of Christ and his first and second coming. We're going to examine what the angel says to the shepherds from Luke 2 on the basis of Christ's person, who he is, and on the basis of his work, what it is that he has done. So we're going to have those two points, and then we will end with a third point of application. So we're going to study his person, who he is, his work, what he has done, and third, we will end with application. 
Let's go ahead and read this passage together. Luke 2, beginning in verse 10. And the angel said to them, this is the shepherds, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. So this is our passage. We're going to break it down into three parts. The first part, who is Jesus? What does the angel say to us through this passage regarding who Jesus is? This will be my first point. Jesus Jesus is the Savior of the world. Jesus is the Savior of the world. Looking at verse 11. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. What I would like you to notice in this passage is that Jesus is given three titles. There are three titles here. What are they? The first title is Savior. You see that in the text? What we want to do here at CBC is we want to look really closely at the biblical text because we believe it is from the text through which God speaks. So three titles, a Savior. Jesus is a Savior. That is his title. Also, here's another title, Christ. You see that at the end of verse 11. And then lastly, the very last word in verse 11, Lord. Jesus is Jesus' name. My name is Chance. That's my name. Yet I have titles that are associated with my name. Jesus has titles that are associated with his name. The titles in my name could be a Christian, a father, a husband, a son, a friend, a pastor. You too have a name and various titles. So did the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus was his name. And in this passage, we have three titles. The one I'm going to be focusing on is Savior. Savior, we're going to be investigating that title. The way I want to understand that title is in relationship to the other titles. So let's look at these other titles. Christ. What do we mean when we say that Jesus is the Christ? What we mean, what the Bible means when the Bible attributes the title Christ to Jesus The authors are using that title to refer to Jesus' role as the long-expected Davidic king. Jesus is the Messiah. We studied that last week. All throughout the Old Testament, there is this promise, there is this longing, there is this expectation that there is coming a Redeemer. And this Redeemer will stand in the lineage of David. Verse 11 specifies that Jesus was born in the city of David. Here, Luke is attaching the Davidic kingdom to Jesus. Jesus is the Messiah. He is what? He is the person to whom the Old Testament was pointing towards. He is the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament. And the title that the Bible gives to Jesus to summarize that is Christ. Now, the next title is Lord. Lord, a Lord, is a master, is a ruler, is a king. A Lord has subjects. 
Jesus Christ is also a Lord. He is the Lord. He is the Lord of Lords. He is a master. He reigns and rules, and his reign and rule cannot be thwarted. Here we see with this title, Jesus flexes his might, his strength. Jesus is a master. He is a king. He is a ruler. Christ, Lord, and then also Savior. All three of these titles so well summarize who Jesus is. Christ in relationship to the Old Testament, Lord in relationship to his reign and rule, and Savior in relationship to you. With Savior, what we see is a a bit different of a side of Jesus, different than Lord. Lord here, you think of strength and might. With Savior, what, what the idea that is communicated is one of empathy and compassion and gentleness and love. Oftentimes with lords, you don't have this loving side. But with Jesus, you get both. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. He is the Christ. He is Lord. He is sovereign. All of us must obey him. But he is also Savior and Lord. He loves you with an infinite love. His compassions towards you are infinite. His greatest delight is for you to come to him in your need and struggle. And he will always receive you. What flows from his heart is love and grace and mercy and compassion. Jesus is the most understanding person ever. And we get this from this notion of Savior. Jesus has come to rescue us. He has come to save us. Out of his love, he has come to us and has not left us in our helpless state. Now, what exactly has Jesus saved us from? What is it that Jesus comes and rescues us from? A very important theological question. I'd like to highlight three things. Things is such a a terrible descriptor word, but I can't think of a a better word at this moment. Jesus saves us from three things. The first thing that Jesus saves us from, to understand this notion of Savior, we have to understand what Jesus saves us from. He is Savior, but from what? Three things. The first is that Jesus saves us from our consequences of sin. When we sin, which we do regularly in our hearts, dear friend, in your hearts is sin. We naturally disobey God. And what Jesus does is he comes and he saves us from our sins. To understand it generally, what Jesus' mission here on this earth, the reason why he came, he is a savior of us and he saves us from our sins. Matthew one twenty one. listen to this. She, Mary, will bear a son and you, Joseph, shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. Dear friends, if you are a Christian, Jesus has saved you from your sins. If you are not a Christian, you must have Jesus save you from your sins. That is what he has come to do for you. Now we can break this down. Consequences. How, what are the consequences of sin? 
Well, the first consequence of, of our sin is God's displeasure, God's anger, His wrath. The Bible says that because God is holy, because God is perfect, because God is unlike us, when we sin, God does not smile. God is not pleased by our sins. If you are in your sins this morning, God is not pleased with you. What Jesus comes and does for us, the message of the gospel is one of rescuing, one of salvation from the anger of God. Jesus rescues us from that. Jesus turns God's wrath towards us and he changes that response towards one of grace and mercy and acceptance. To pin this to a specific passage, Romans 5, 9. This is Paul. Since therefore we have now been justified by Jesus' blood, much more shall we be saved by Jesus from the wrath of God. Jesus rescues us from this judgment. We all stand condemned in our sins. And what Jesus does is he rescues us from this condemnation. And he turns God's wrath and anger, he turns that towards grace and peace and mercy. Now that is not the only thing that Jesus saves us from. Jesus also saves us from the devil, from demonic power. Matthew 8, 28 through 32, I'm gonna summarize this. And when Jesus came to the other side of the country, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tombs so fierce that no one could pass by that way. And behold, these men cried out, what do you have to do with us, son of God? Now there was a herd of many pigs feeding at some distance away from these men. And the demons begged Jesus, saying, If you cast us out, send us into the herd of pigs. And Jesus said to them, Go. So the demons came out and went into the pigs. And behold, the whole herd of pigs rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned into the waters. These forces are alive and well right now. Demonic forces, the works of the devil the works of demons is alive and well today. You cannot understand the affairs of this world unless you understand that the forces of darkness are centralized in the devil and his demons. There is this supernatural realm that we cannot see. What we see is flesh and bones. But the Bible says that beyond this world, there is another world a world in which there is a hierarchy of evil forces, the devil being preeminent here and his demons also being prominent. And what Jesus does is he rescues us from the domain of darkness. By Jesus' blood, he rescues us from the grip of the devil. If you are not a Christian, the devil controls you. You might not ever think of your actions in that way, but that is what scripture teaches. Outside of Christ, there is no hope. And there's only misery and demonic oppression. Jesus saves us from that. Jesus comes and he conquers the work of the devil. 
and he brings us into his ownership and his governance. So those are the forces of evil outside of us that Jesus saves us from. Now, there are forces within, though, that Jesus also saves us from. Jesus saves us from ourselves. Jesus saves us from ourselves. Jesus saves us from the enslaving power of sin in our own lives. Another passage, Romans 6, 17 through 18. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. What that passage is teaching is this. Outside of Christ, outside of grace, outside of redemption, the Bible teaches that we are slaves to sin. We are a slave to our sinful condition. We are inward focused and we can't look outward. Our whole lives are consumed with self outside of Christ. Now what Jesus does is he comes and breaks the power of sin in your life. And he saves you from yourself. He delivers you from you. There's more that could be said here. The Bible also teaches other things that Jesus saves us from. This suffices for the, for the point to gem- demonstrate what it is that Jesus saves us from. Jesus saves us from God's anger. He saves us from demonic forces. And he saves us from ourselves. Now here we've been outside of this passage. Let, I, I want to connect this back to the sermon back to Luke 2. So he saves us from these things. And who does he save? Who is his object and goal when he comes, when he came? Look with me in verse 10. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. What does this mean? What is all the people? Who is this angel talking about? What this doesn't mean is that Jesus' salvation, this does not mean that all people will be saved. The Bible over and over again demands something of you in your response to Christ. What the Bible demands of you, what God demands of you for the benefits of Christ's salvation to come to you is faith. If you do not have faith in Christ, God's salvation is not for you. So while the invitation is universal, the application is not The invitation of salvation is for everybody. All must come to Jesus, Jew and Gentile. But the application of that is contingent upon your faith. So this is not a blanket salvation for everybody. There's a uniqueness about the salvation that Christ offers. And I'd like to show you that from the context. Look at 2.14. This is somewhat of a benediction that the angel gives to the the world as they depart into heaven. Look at what the angel says. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Notice here that God's peace 
is promised only to those in whom God is pleased. God's peace is only extended towards those with whom God is pleased. And God is only pleased by those who know His Son. The salvation that God offers to you this morning and to the world is universal in invitation, but specific in application. And what the angel is saying here, connecting this back to Luke 2.10, all the people, what the angel is saying here, this is, I've been building this case, this is what the angel is saying. The gospel, Jesus is savior of both Jew and Greek. What we have here is we have a, we have a, a change in salvation history. God's redemptive purposes up until this point have been for the people of Israel. They've been focused on the people of Israel. But what, what, what happens with Jesus is that God's plan of redemption, Jesus' salvation, extends to the Gentile. The Gentile is the non-Jew. We, we are gen- most of us are Gentiles. For all peoples, Jesus' salvation, being for all peoples, means that Jesus' salvation is not just for the Jew. Jesus' salvation is for you and me. Gentile pagans, that's, that's how the Bible describes us. We are Gentiles. We were not raised in the, in the Jewish tradition. We have come to faith as Gentiles, but God's purpose of salvation is now for the whole world. Jew, and praise God for Gentile. For us. All tribes, nations, and tongues, whether black or white, Asian or American. God's purpose is now in this world. God's plan of redemption is for all peoples. Even us. Praise the Lord. Jesus is the Savior. Jesus is the Savior of the whole world. So to kind of capture this point, what am I saying? The angel says that Jesus is Savior. Jesus is warm. Jesus is approachable. He is gentle, kind, and sympathetic and aware of your need. He is a, Jesus is aware of your helplessness. We are all helpless. And Jesus is infinitely knowledgeable of your helplessness. And he comes to you, and if you are a Christian, he saves you from your consequences of sin. He saves you from God's anger. He saves you from the demonic forces, and he saves you from yourself. He comes and does that for you. That's who Jesus is. That's who this baby is. His salvation is for both Jew and Gentile. Segwaying to the second point, that's, what, that's who Jesus is. What does he do? What does he do for you? Second point, write this. Jesus suffers. Jesus suffers. Looking at verse 12. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. So these shepherds are looking for a baby who is wrapped in clothes and who is lying in a manger. Breaking these down. A baby, a baby boy. 
I, I, I'm a father. I, I have a, a wonderful wife. And the Lord has blessed us with three children. And with each of those children, I was in the delivery room with my wife. And I saw the birth happen, and, and it was uh, one of the greatest blessings that I've ever had. Now, as the child was delivered, I had some trepidation about holding the child. Dads, have you felt this? You don't want to drop your baby. I don't, I don't know that moms think about this. You know, my wife's just, give me the baby. I'm like praying, you know, oh Lord, I pray that I don't drop this baby. There's a fragileness of babies, amen? We all, whenever we start life, we're very fragile. We're very weak. The process of birth is very traumatic for babies. I've heard that the hardest two parts of this life are coming into the world and, and getting out of it. I think that there's a lot of truth in that. Now, dear friends, Jesus was a baby. In the Christmas season, we can oftentimes hear this and not really think about it. The Bible teaches that Jesus created Mary. And yet, Mary nursed Jesus and birthed Jesus. Mary's very creator was in her arms. This is a paradox. Here you have the, 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 the highest being, God himself, descends to the depths of human experience and becomes in every sense of the term, except sin, truly human. The king of the universe, descending from the heights of heaven and becoming a helpless, weak baby. And this baby is wrapped in swaddling clothes. There's not a tremendous amount of significance in, in this wrapping. What the author is doing is showing us that Jesus is truly human. He is human in every sense of the term. He, like every other baby during this time, was wrapped with cloth. Now I want us to notice what it is that he is placed in. And it is with what it is that he is placed in that the emphasis, the power of the gospel is made manifest. What is he placed in? Is he placed in a royal crib? Is he placed on a throne? Is he placed in something that is sanitized and germ-free? Is he placed in something in which honors his deity? Far from it. Our births, what it is that we were laid in, far surpasses what Jesus was laid in. Jesus was laid in a manger. Now, a manger is a feeding trough. Think about what cows and pigs and horses and donkeys and sheep eat out of. Picture that. The king of heaven, the maker of heaven and earth, his first throne is a manger. 
is a feeding trough. Now, we don't know whether there, were an, whether there were animals around. We believe that because he was put in a manger, either there were animals in the room or close by. Now, for, for the ranchers, for the farmers, you know that animals are dirty. Animals are gross. It's okay, you can laugh. <laughs> One of my skills in seminary was that I, I had the skill of finding and working very odd jobs. Now, the oddest job, the, the, the cream of the crop for me, was that I slept at a dog kennel overnight. I slept at a dog kennel overnight. I was in the, I was in the dog house a lot in seminary. I would ask Catherine to come and, you know, stay with me. You know, come and see how it is. And she always declined. I, I, you know, you do what you have to do. You do what you have to do to, to make ends meet sometime. Now, this place was dirty. This place was gross. I might have some disease now from sleeping there so much. It was gross. And the reason why is because all of these dogs were everywhere, hair everywhere. It was, it was a dirty place. Now, remembering the Lord Jesus Christ, the king of the world, his throne is nasty. It's dirty. It's filthy. This was not some royal reception. This was not some procession with pomp and prestige. The savior of the world being born in an obscure town in the Middle East being laid in a manger. What Jesus does here, what, what this shows us, and here I'm moving to application, moving to my third point. Jesus humiliates himself. Jesus suffers. The Bible says that from beginning to end, Jesus' life was one of struggle and difficulty. His th original throne was a dirty feeding trough. And yet what we see, what we see with Jesus, we see that there's this pattern with how God works in the world. And the pattern is this. This is my third point. The third point is this. The power of God in human weakness. The power of God in human weakness. God's power shows itself in human weakness. What Jesus offers us here is the paradigm and pattern of how God works in the world. Jesus, being the king of heaven, descends to the depths of humanity. Jesus suffered for us. Jesus humiliated himself for us. Jesus chose to go to the bottom of human existence, from the manger to the cross, to save us. And while Jesus being weak, while Jesus being one who suffers, while Jesus being the victim of all victims, what we also see is the power of God. 
we see the power of God manifesting itself in the weakness of the person of Jesus. He came to live and to die for us. And yet in that is where God's power is manifested most. So transitioning this this pattern, what we see with Jesus being in this, this manger, what we see is that in our lives, what God does, what God does in the life of a Christian, is that God proves his power most in your weaknesses. It is not in human strength where God's power is most manifest. It is in human weakness. And to to just, it's so important to touch on this regularly. The prosperity gospel if you turn on TBN or you, you, you watch a televangelist, it's likely, you're likely to hear stuff like this. What they say, which is a total lie, what they say is that if you are suffering or you are experiencing difficulty, it's because you don't have enough faith. Never believe that. Never believe that. They say that health and strength and prosperity and beauty are signs that you have the right faith. Don't believe that. What we see with Jesus is how God works. The way of Christianity, the way of life for Christians, different, it is one of weakness. Jesus tells us to pick up our cross and to follow him. That's suffering. That's loss. That's weakness. But nonetheless, that is where God works. If you are a Christian and you hold on to your faith and you go through a dark time, you will find that God's mercy and grace towards you during that time is more precious and sweet than during times of prosperity. The way of the cross, the way of Christianity is one of weakness and loss. But through that, God works. Just as he did with our Lord Jesus Christ. And so dear friend, if you are weak this morning, If you are struggling, if you're out of gas for whatever reason, whether it's your health, whether it's cancer, whether it's criticism, whether it's COVID, remember this. Jesus knows your struggle. He knows the struggle far better than we do. From his very first breath to his last here on earth was one of trial and difficulty. He died for our sins. He died for you. And what he does is he comes beside us and he says to us that he will fill us with his strength. He will give us his strength if we give him his weakness. Excuse me. He will give us his strength 
if we give him our weakness. And God will use us. God will use his power in our weakness, not just for us, but for others. Through our weakness, God makes manifest his power, not just for us, but for other people. If you want to be useful to Jesus, give Jesus your weaknesses. Jesus says, come to me, and I will give you rest. To kind of end with some specific questions in your prayer life. How do we transition from the sermon to our prayer life? This, this is, these are the types of questions you should ask the Lord in your difficulty, in your weakness. God, what are you trying to teach me? What do you want from me? What do you want to show me? Where do you want to lead me? What do you want me to do, God? Dear friends, don't run from the difficulty. Don't deny it. Don't like, a- a- act like it's not there. Stop believing that difficulty is a sign of God's displeasure. And this is what, what, what you tell God in your prayers. So those questions and, and now what you tell Him. God, show me your power. Show the world your power. Use my difficulty, my humiliation, my suffering as a tool for you to use. I submit my will to yours. Show the world how great you are through my weakness. Dear friend, dear Christian, dear person of whom Christ has died for, what you lack God supplies. What you lack, God supplies. Gracious Father, Lord, I pray for those who are struggling. I pray for those who are weak. God, I pray and ask for your grace and your mercy. Father, I pray that by the pattern, this pattern that they see in the Lord Jesus Christ, their Savior, that they would turn to Jesus with their weaknesses and they would realize that it is through those challenges that your grace towards them is made more precious. Whether it's those who struggle with health, with finances, with relationships, God, comfort the believer. And God, for the non-believer, I pray that you would use the difficulty of life to, to show them that they are helpless, that we have no hope in this world. And yet, because of Jesus' kindness and mercy, Jesus offers to them salvation found in his weakness, but raised from the dead, and now the object and person of our worship and faith. God, we ask and pray for your mercy and your grace by your Spirit's power to provide what it is that we lack. Pray these things in Jesus' precious name.